This video is part of an audiobook series featuring Designing Reality, How to Survive and Thrive in the Third Digital Revolution by the Gershenfeld Brothers in 2017. For more audiobooks, please visit my YouTube channel, find me on Spotify, or visit my website for downloads. Chapter 6, The Opportunity. Neil has given us a glimpse around the corner into the future, providing a technology roadmap for the next half century of digital fabrication. Like Gordon Moore in 1965, Neil is no Nostradamus. He is simply observing the past decade of accelerations and projecting the likely trajectory moving forward, a trajectory anchored in the underlying science of digital technologies, the active research roadmap, and the growing fab ecosystem. Having access to this roadmap is analogous to having been in that hypothetical coffee house in 1965, learning about Gordon Moore's observations and envisioning the projected roadmap for the digital computation performance. As with Moore's law, if Lass's law holds, digital fabrication performance in the next 50 years will be a billion times greater than it is today. Such a scenario offers the very real potential to democratize manufacturing, transforming how we make, unmake and remake things, and empower billions of people to make what they consume, creating a more self-sufficient, interconnected, and sustainable society. This is the opportunity. Realizing this opportunity is another matter. Lass's law is not written in stone. The pace of acceleration of digital fabrication performance and the impact of these emerging technologies on society will not be determined by, th by some invisible hand. It will be shaped by individuals, organizations, and institutions that recognize the power and promise, as well as the risks, of the technology. Lass's law depends on people committing to accelerating improvements in capability and reach, as well as focusing to on creating value and mitigating harm throughout society. We have observed how early signs of how fab labs can transform lives, but there is no guarantee the positive potential of digital fabrication technologies will be fully realized. The track record with social systems is clear. They do not easily, easily align and embrace new technology just because it is possible. Human behavior has to change. Organizations have to change. Old institutions need to adapt and new ecosystems must be forged. Deeply embedded rules and assumptions that guide society and underpin institutions have to be relaxed and refashioned. Although the people we interviewed for this book have differed on aspects of the roadmap such as when and how personal fabrication will be widely available in the home, there was broad appreciation for the transformation, transformational potential of the technology. The roadmap might or might not unfold precisely as proposed, but there was consensus that digital fabrication capability and reach will improve by many orders of magnitude in the coming decades, with deep implications for society. Our aim in this final chapter is to offer tangible guidance for ensuring that the arc of the third digital revolution bends toward broadly inclusive community and community empowerment. In Chapter 2, we examined the threshold challenges of digital fabrication, access, enabling ecosystems, and risk mitigation. In Chapter 4, we put these issues into a social science and historical context, with a focus on rates of change and how digital ecosystems propagate. Now, we turn to how to leverage these insights to meet the threshold goal challenges, co-evolving the social and technical systems. Throughout our interviews, there was a hunger for future narratives that were neither utopian nor dystopian, but rather aspirational and achievable. As Alvin Toffler highlighted in Future Shock, quote, 
every society faces not merely a succession of probable futures, but an array of possible futures and a conflict over preferable futures. The management of change is the effort to convert certain possibles into probables and then to agreed upon preferables, end quote. To assist in the journey toward preferred futures, we begin this chapter with eight aspirational scenarios in which digital fabrication is a key driver for positively transforming society. These scenarios were all co-created with fab pioneers from across five continents. The scenarios address critical social issues such as economic sustainability, literacy and learning, cultural transformation, physical infrastructure, and the very materials out of which everything is constructed. There may not yet be a single integrated vision of true north for digital fabrication, but the combination of these scenarios begins to paint the picture. To help build the stable steps for urging these and other aspirational futures into reality, we then introduce a model for predictive transformation, a framework for helping guide the social and technical systems so they co-evolve to meet collective goals enabled by digital fabrication. We conclude with final thoughts on humanizing the technology so that everyone not only can survive, but also can thrive in the third digital revolution. How to envision almost anything. It is not hard to imagine a fab lab, even for those who have never been in one. It is more challenging for most people to imagine what personal fabrication looks like in the home. Will it be like a kitchen, a dedicated room with a variety of machine modules and some storage areas for materials? Is there a version that sits on the desktop in a typical office or business? How does the capability work in rural or village homes where 70% of the global population lives? When it comes to digital materials and programmable matter, it becomes even harder to visualize how a typical person will interact with the technologies. The four phases of Neil's roadmap get progressively more challenging for the average person to visualize how they might interact with the emerging fab technologies. The first phase is relatively easy. Most people can imagine working in a fab lab with digital interfaces to machines like laser cutters and 3D printers. The next phase, which Neil calls personal fabrication powered by machines making machines, is more challenging. If machines make machines, what are the people doing? In fact, this phase might be better described as the hobbyist phase, as it involves tech-savvy early adopters being able to take evolving components of a fab lab and configuring them to meet their personal needs. Even in this phase, there are questions, such as where will the personal fabrication equipment reside in a home or other locations? In this case, the connection between personal fabrication and everyday computing may not hold as an exact parallel when it comes to everyday behaviors. With the introduction and spread of digital materials, there is truly a paradigm shift in terms of how people will make, unmake, and remake things. How these emerging technologies will impact how we live, learn, work, and play is harder to visualize, even for those developing the technologies. What will the, di the digital materials look like? Where will they be stored? How many building blocks will one need to build a chair, a drone, a car, or a house? How easy will it be to disassemble and reassemble them? In many ways, it is easier to understand the underlying technology principles of the roadmap than to create a mental map for how they will impact daily life. This is where storytellers and artists, grounded in the science, can play a critical role. Scientists and futurists can look at the research roadmap and make informed predictions about how the future might unfold. Storytellers can look at the same research roadmap and conjure up compelling visions for how the future should unfold. 
By challenging the world we live in today against the world we want to see emerge, we can galvanize people across distributed ecosystems to transform aspirational futures into reality. Providing a social context and mental maps for the future capabilities of the technology roadmap helps, in turn, to influence and shape the development of the technology. The aspirational scenarios we present in this chapter are not utopian scenarios. Many tech pioneers present their technologies through rose-colored lenses. The television show Silicon Valley satirizes this tendency with its fictional CEOs proudly insisting that they are making the world a better place through Paxos algorithms for consensus protocols and other similarly absurd jargon-laced leaps. Techno-utopianism can lull us into a false sense of security that any problems that technology or society creates will somehow be solved by technology. Our visions here are grounded in the science roadmap and are ambitious but achievable. We must also be careful not to saturate ourselves in dystopian visions of terrifying technological futures. Today's popular movies, video games, novels, and comic books are full of scary visions of technology run amok. When the topic of AI or bioengineering or assemblers assembling assemblers comes up, it's not or it's hard not to jump to visions of rogue AI threatening humanity or a rogue state or a college frat party playing with personal biofabrication and changing the human gene pool. There are, of course, very real risks with accelerating technologies, but a constant drumbeat of deeply dystopian scenarios makes many people feel scared and helpless. It risks disengagement or outright opposition. If we are going to galvanize a generation to help shape the third digital revolution, people need the motivation to lean forward and engage. They need to be inspired. In fact, futurist Alvin Toffler also pointed out in 1970 that, quote, we must vastly widen our conception of possible futures. To the rigorous disciplines of science, we must add the flaming imagination of art. End quote. Hmm. Cultivating an informed, engaged, and passionate population in a world of increasingly complex and accelerating technologies is one of the great challenges of the 21st century. An astrophysicist and science evangelist Carl Sagan famously pointed out, quote, We live in a society exquisitely dependent on science and technology, in which hardly anyone knows anything about science and technology. End quote. To help address this disconnect, we must engage not only pioneering scientists and social scientists, but also storytellers and scholars in the humanities. The eight aspirational futures in this chapter are, we hope, both inviting and plausible. They are all based on the contemporary work of real people, passionate fab pioneers doing amazing work and offering evocative visions for how digital fabrication can improve people's lives. When designing these scenarios, we used a prompt inspired by the world-building process employed by narrative designer Alex McDowell, who has been exploring fab futures since he worked with Greg Lynn in Hollywood to pioneer fab technologies in Hollywood for Minority Report followed by a tour as a visiting artist at the MIT Media Lab. McDowell has created evocative worlds for movies such as Fight Club, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Man of Steel, and numerous others. He is probably best known, however, for his work designing the 2002 film Minority Report, directed by Steven Spielberg. Set in 2054 in Washington, D.C., Spielberg wanted the movie to be future reality, a fictional world built on the foundations of real science. To accomplish this, he pulled together a think tank of pioneering scientists, futurists, designers, and storytellers, including Alex and Neil. 
The film introduced to large audiences many emerging technologies, from driverless cars to gesture-based interfaces to context-sensitive advertising. Companies like Microsoft, Hewlett-Packard, and numerous startups have credited the movie for inspiring breakthrough products in the real world. The Minority Report experienced inspired McDowell to launch the World Building Institute at the University of Southern California and to create a design studio that combines rigorous science research, expert-informed insights with a de deeply human lens, and compelling narratives to create new worlds for clients ranging from leading uh, corporations to pioneering social entrepreneurs. McDowell describes this vision in the introduction to Four, a collection of short stories published by the software company Autodesk to explore the future of design and technology. Quote, We have the power to build the futures we want to inhabit, not by following the trends set by our current constraints, but by leading each step forward through imagination and ingenuity. Our future is shared, and storytelling is the common language that allows us to share this vision. End quote. E-Line Media has partnered with McDowell's design studio on a number of science-grounded, expert-informed world-building projects which Alan has worked on. The process starts by asking what-if and why-not questions to open up the creative process of imagining the possible so that the possible can become the probable, and then reality. The Fab City movement is a great example of an aspirational vision that is galvanizing and motivating action around the world. The vision asks, what if our cities could be globally connected, yet locally productive by 2054? In his Fab City white paper, Thomas Diaz captures the aspirational Fab City vision of the future with this declaration, signaled in the introduction. Quote, we need to reinvent our cities and their relationship to people and nature by relocalizing production so that cities are generative rather than extractive restorative rather than destructive, and empowering rather than alienating, where prosperity flourishes and people have purposeful, meaningful work that they enjoy that enables them to use their passion and talent. We need to recover the knowledge and capacity on how things are made in our cities by connecting citizens with the advanced technologies that are transforming our everyday life. End quote. By powerfully articulating a vision of locally productive, globally self-sufficient cities, the fab pioneers in Barcelona have created a movement. As we noted in earlier chapters, following the pledge by the mayor and chief architect of Barcelona at the 10th annual Fab Lab conference, over a dozen cities and countries from around the world have signed on. In each of the following eight new visions of the aspirational fab futures, we identify one or more current challenges and introduce an individual whose current work is addressing these issues. We then project forward a few decades to imagine a scenario where the person's work is amplifying and illustrating a potential new reality. We are not making predictions so much as seeking to provide a mental map of possible futures. McDowell calls scenarios like these provocations because they are designed to provoke thought and action. Hopefully they will inspire master storytellers across diverse media to incorporate such visions into their art forms. The first two visions build on the Fab City movement with a focus on self-sufficiency across different geographical locations, distributed networks in rural villages and urban centers. The theme of self-sufficiency, which runs through both scenarios, hints at possible future social and economic models anchored in capability and collaboration rather than fear and isolation. What if digital fabrication was distributed across thousands of rural villages? 
Most fab labs are in big cities and large towns. There are very few in remote rural villages. Rural labs have a wide variety of unique challenges, ranging from reliable internet access and electricity to region-specific issues such as the intrusion of dust from dirt roads into the machines, resulting in downtime and maintenance costs, and low literacy levels. Yet, if we truly want to strive toward universal fab inclusion, we need to overcome these unique difficulties. Yogesh Kulkarni, who manages, Vigyan, who manages Vigyan Ashram, the prototype for the first fab lab, established in co collaboration with MIT, is passionate about solving these problems. The Vigyan Ashram Lab, located in a rural region of the Indian state of Maharashtra, educates and empowers local youth with an academic model based on the educational philosophy of Mahatma Gandhi. Gandhi believed that craft should be the medium of education and promoted learning curricular subjects through agriculture, weaving, and carpentry by practicing Naitalim, which tra translates roughly as a new education pedagogy. The Fab Lab at Vigyan Ashram has successfully revitalized this tradition in a modern way with advanced digital fabrication tools grounded in local culture. Many of Kulkarni's students have gone on to create innovative local solutions to local farming challenges or have started local businesses and even launched new regional fab labs. Kulkarni wants to show how this model can ultimately empower all rural communities, the rural equivalent of Barcelona's fab city vision. Here is Kulkarni's vision. The year is 2038, 20 years after Kulkarni and a network of village leaders and fab partner partner fab pioneers across the Maharashtra state announced the Fab Village Pledge. They are making great progress toward their goal of bringing basic fab access to all 43,655 villages in the state. Like the Fab City Pledge, the model builds on the phased rollout of digital fabrication capabilities at different scales across the region, but the capabilities are optimized for the unique local rural ecosystem. The model began in 2018, when Kulkarni and his team partnered with more than 100 schools already running the IBT, Introduction to Basic Technology program, that he and his team developed. Given that these schools already had basic maker capabilities and, equally important, maker spirit, the IBT schools were a low-friction place to start. The partners worked with the local community to, to build platforms for collaboration across each of the schools and offered community access to the labs, enabling a combination of private and public funding to help with the initial rollout. In parallel, Kulkarni and his team began training a cadre of edupreneurs, including graduates of the IBT program, to become local fab service providers in the community. These individuals were funded through a new fab-focused microfinance loan program, enabling the purchase of a single fabrication machine reconfigurable as a laser cutter, a 3D printer, or a 3D scanner. The loans were distributed to ensure that each village has a combination of additive and subtractive capabilities, creating distributed community fab labs. These single-machine enterprises are able to repay their loans through revenues earned by taking in custom design work and renting out time on the machines. All these enterprises helped create a generation of fab evangelists and practitioners necessary for bringing digital fabrication to their communities. These edupreneurs were also connected to both a local and global knowledge network, mostly accessed through mobile devices. They shared insights on locally relevant projects, from drip irrigation to sanitation to food preservation. 
They also leveraged the Growing Materials Knowledge Network to get insights from other local fab innovators on how to use the local raw materials and natural polymers from Maharashtra's five agroclimate zones to reduce the cost and waste of the consumables used in fabrication. Over time, some of these individuals have been able to buy additional machines and build larger community-based labs with a greater capacity. As the number of IBT schools grew and thousands of youth were coming out of the programs more empowered and better prepared for personal and professional self-sustainability, government, industry, and philanthropy took notice. Since Indian law provides for corporations to spend 2% of their profits on corporate social responsibility, this growing movement attracted corporate funding because it both produced qualified future employees and created a culture of innovation and made positive social impacts. This new funding stream enabled all the larger villages to launch community fab labs with greater capacity than the local labs. Initially, the fabrication hardware was made by Western companies and imported to India. But soon, industrial-sized labs emerged in Maharashtra's regional cities, with the hardware and software increasingly developed locally through globally accessed open-source designs. This local development greatly reduced inefficiencies in the supply chain as well as the overall cost, enabling the exponential growth of all the fab nodes in the regional ecosystem. The national government took notice of all the social, economic, and cultural benefits catalyzed through the regional network. It branded the fab network the Maharashtra Miracle and poured more resources into the community to ensure that all 43,655 villages would have access to basic digital fabrication. As word of the Maharashtra Miracle Fab Network spread around the world, other rural regions began to implement and adapt the model. Kulkarni was realizing the vision of Vigyan Ashram's founder, S.S. Kalbag, whose goal in launching the Fab Lab was, quote, to see India prosper and to be a pathfinder to the rest of the world. Kalbag recognized that this will happen only when everyone can reach his or her own full potential. Hence, raise the lowest, end quote. What if Fab Labs enabled self-determination through self-sufficiency? Often upheld as the poster child for post-industrial collapse, Detroit has faced decades of disinvestment and decay. Less visible is the network of thousands of block clubs, a vital art scene, and a range of innovative revitalization projects reflected in the work of Blair Evans. Evans is an MIT electrical engineering graduate, a serial entrepreneur, a formal sup former superintendent of a cluster of charter schools, and the owner of a 30-acre parcel of land on Detroit's east side. The parcel is ground zero for a bold experiment in urban transformation. Centered in the Insight-focused Fab Lab, which operates in the community and in support of K-12 schools and adult life explorers, Evans and his colleagues are boldly exploring new models that foster the development of impressive, splendid, admirable human beings and allow everyone to work and spend less, create and connect more. Evans point out, points out that building self-sufficiency in the inner city is not a new idea, but the impact can be multiplied when fab labs can accelerate the fabrication of everything from food to furniture, as well as personal growth experiences. Let's examine Evans' vision of the future. Imagine it is 2037, and technological unemployment has accelerated throughout the world, creating great disruption and discord. 
but Detroit is now a beacon for a post-salary future. That is, where individuals can be self-sufficient and find meaning, purpose, and dignity by increasingly making what they consume, self-determination through self-sufficiency. In this model, people spend about 30 hours per week working individually and in community-anchored cooperatives, directly making what is needed for the family and community, and making additional designs and items for sale, and in exchange in support of others following similar desires. The remaining 15 to 20 hours of what was traditionally time on the job is spent combined with other free time to pursue personal passions and personally motivated activities around growth and personal development. This model is now the growing personality in the east side of Detroit and in urban centers around the world. Detroit has also become a pioneer in large-scale permaculture with well-known with well-suited crops such as tomatoes, bell peppers, kohlrabi, zucchini, hot peppers, beans, peas, onions, and potatoes. There is sufficient open space for plants and beneficial microbes growing within and above the soil to be a source of energy by converting sunlight, carbon dioxide, and nitrogen into renewable fuel sources. These combined plantings also provide for a range of accessible ecosystem services, such as soil remediation and enrichment, the improvement of air and water quality, and water retention, to name a few. In parallel, government-sponsored apprenticeship programs offer a path to, tra to traditional trades. The combination of increased food self-sufficiency and increased wage-earning capability has brought stability to the community, as evidenced by formerly abandoned houses being fixed up with innovative fab housing, using designs sourced both locally and globally, but all built locally. Underneath the change is a fundamental rethinking of the economic model tied to work. In many languages, people repeat what is known as Blair's maxim, which is, selling wholesale and buying retail is a losing strategy. Most people have been working for someone else and, in effect, are selling their labor at wholesale prices, with someone else doing the markup before the final sale. Then, these same people would have to turn around and buy what they need at retail prices. For food, furniture, housing, and many other needs, digital fabrication makes it possible to buy and sell wholesale. There is more barter and exchange than, sell than buying and selling with innovative uses of the blockchain technologies, increasingly sophisticated cryptographic technologies enabling the recording and validating of these person-to-person -person exchanges. As, Evan put, as Evans puts it, quote, If living large is being happy, self-sufficient, and part of a community, we can do that, end quote. This vision now has traction in cultures all around the world, all of which are emitting and degrading less and enjoying and thriving more. The next two future visions center on learning and mentorship, both qualities essential for cultivating fab literacies. The first vision builds on the personal learning journey of one person who visited more than two dozen fab labs over two years. Learning is also central to the scenario of hands-on project-based learning that begins in Egypt and expands globally. Both scenarios represent methods for turning literacy from a rate limiter to a rate accelerator. What if tens of thousands of traveling fab mentors circled the world? One of the challenges that emerged in virtually every fab, pi fab pioneer interview and that was reinforced by the feedback from surveys sent to stakeholders is the overwhelming need for experienced mentors throughout the fab ecosystem. The fab pioneers want to mentor those new to the ecosystem, but they often don't have enough time to meet the accelerating demand. 
Jens Dybik, previously mentioned, runs a fab lab in Oslo and embodies what could be a new model for personal development and mentorship. In 2011, after Dybik graduated from one of Europe's leading design schools, he embarked on a two-year global tour of his fab labs as indicated on the prior page and photo. His aim was to find new business models for sharing-based approach to design. He spent about two or three weeks in each of his nearly 30 labs. The full journey cost him the equivalent of around 35,000 U.S. dollars. There were around 200 labs when he was touring, and the trip changed his life in unexpected ways. By the end of the journey, he had implemented the sharing-based approach into his design practice, making his designs public and working with an emerging global community of design partners. He also demonstrated how to make a living with the combination of global collaboration and local fabrication. Moreover, he became one of the most sought-after fab mentors. The journey changed him from a student to a teacher, and this brings us to a future vision based on Dybek's journey, which we have called Jen's Journey. The year is 2035. There are now tens of thousands of community fab labs throughout the world. A fixture in nearly all these fab labs are thousands of people on a Jen's journey, from recent graduates to retirees to the growing number of technologically unemployed to entire families. Like Divik's original journey, these travels include visits to multiple labs on every continent. During their two-week visits, the travelers all work as volunteers, sharing what they know and learning from people in each location. The difference is that in any given week, there might be two or three visitors in each of the tens of thousands of labs. When people travel with their families, which is increasingly common, the learning extends beyond the lab to the host families. Sometimes, of course, with the younger travelers, friendships and romances result in stays that last longer than two weeks. A key to making the Jen's journeys possible has been the confluence of three enabling factors. First, in 2020, a a pioneering Norwegian foundation began awarding scholarships to help people making such a journey. It just started out as benchmarking travel support between labs and slowly expanded into more extended travel support to visit multiple labs, with labs nominating people who they believe are ready to make such a trip. Concerned that the visit's not present, not present a burden on the host labs, there is financial and logistical support for the labs as well as the travelers. The initial support to a lab is prioritized for travelers in the first phases of their journeys, when there is a higher need for mentoring by the host lab. The support for the labs declines as the travelers continue their tours, since the individuals are increasingly bringing mentoring capability rather than needing it. A visitor in the second half of their gen's journey is a welcome addition to any lab. Around the same time, a growing number of universities around the world began granting credit for one- and two-year journeys if they included a digital portfolio and met other academic criteria. By 2025, the sources of funding had expanded expanded substantially to include many private foundations, public agencies, and even commercial businesses seeing this as a way to increase brand awareness and connect them with promising talent. Rather than insisting people show up at the office every two weeks, unemployment agencies now allow registration at labs anywhere in the world. Today, Jen's journeys have become a widely valued force for global integration, cross-cultural appreciation, and skill development and personal renewal. What if students, software, and machines could all improvise together? Dinah Elzonfali took Neil's How to Make Almost Anything class in 2011 as a graduate student at MIT. 
She had come to Cairo, or from Cairo, where she was working as an architect. In her architecture studies in Egypt, the curriculum was highly structured. There was no flexibility to take a class in computer programming, let alone anything like Neil's class. In 2014, Mohammed Hisham, an, an IT entrepreneur in El Zanfali's hometown of Cairo, emailed Neil about setting up a fab lab. Neil connected him with El Zanfali, who was already planning to set up a lab. El Zanfali and Hisham joined forces and co-founded Fab Lab Egypt. At first, as El Zanfali tells it, the lab drew nerds and geeks, most of whom worked at home. They quickly learned how to use the digital fabrication equipment, but El Zanfali noticed that they were not so quick to come up with new ideas on what to fabricate. She set out to develop new approaches to help novices become creative inventors. This goal became the focus of her dissertation, which introduces an I-3 approach to innovation, a process that begins with imitation, followed by iteration, and then improvisation. The approach starts with people sh with showing people an example of a finished product and having them figure out how to make their own copy, imitation. This includes figuring out which software and which machines are needed. Then, she has people make one or more guided changes in the item, iteration. After that, people are ready to improvise. Ilzan Folly's vision is for people, software, and hardware to be able to effectively improvise together. Now imagine this vision being realized in schools across Egypt and then around the world. And here it is. It is 2030, and there are now hundreds of fab labs across Egypt, some connected to new Egyptian universities and STEM high schools. Others are located in small and large communities, and a growing number are found in K-12 schools. Initially, the schools were resistant to the concept of fab labs, but when a half-dozen pioneering STEM schools began getting great results from their students, not only cultivating innovative and passionate learners, but also clearly improving in core subject areas, other schools began to embrace the concept. The fab labs facilitated productive pathways for youth and young adults in the region, and, as a result, were valued by government leaders at all levels. Within a decade, having a fab lab in a school was no different from having a library or a gym, something that was just assumed a part of well-rounded learning. Teachers came to embrace their shifting role to mentors, coaches, and collaborators instead of primarily lecturers. Schools gradually began shifting from high-stakes testing to innovative portfolio models for assessing and supporting student learning trajectories. As schools across Egypt adopted the I-3 model, they were able to share their FAB curriculum, professional development, and operating insights with other schools, sharing knowledge and strategies for overcoming barriers to the transition to new hands-on, project-based approaches for teaching and learning. All the tools were also adapted to work well in each of the local communities. English-centric software and documentation, including the more technical vocabulary that often goes untranslated, was all translated into local languages, further reducing friction for adoption and effective use. To help ensure universal access to all schools, Egyptian school networks developed an innovative program where high school students made digital fabrication machines for middle school students, and middle school students made machines that elementary school students could use. The older kids mentored the younger kids on both the use of the hardware and software and the application of the I-3 model. They also shared the insights from the Boston South End Technology Center, Fab Labs, Learn to Teach and Teach to Learn model. Making and mentorship became a constructive focus for youth otherwise facing high levels of unemployment. 
As, at the university and postgraduate level, Egyptian researchers working with like-minded colleagues around the world have begun developing both hardware and software that is more responsive and collaborative to the FABR, or People in Fab Labs, tapping into the broader network of open designs in real time to suggest a diversity of ideas and approaches resulting from the operator's explorations. Throughout the world, the design of software and even hardware had begun to take into account the process of imitation, iteration, and improvisation, continually adapting and extending Elzon Folly's vision to align with the local community. What if advanced technologies preserved and extended ancient cultures? Personal fabrication is as old as civilization itself. Creating and using tools for self-sustainability and personal expression dates back to over two million years. Today, some of the oldest cultures in the planet struggle with how modern society is eroding ancient traditions and cultural heritage. Fab labs could be one more modern intrusion, or, as is suggested here, they could support the harmonious bridging of advanced technology and ancient culture. The Cook Inlet Tribal Council, CITC, is a pioneering Alaska Native social service organization based in Anchorage. A core part of its mission is to build a future where the youth have the ability, confidence, and courage to advance and achieve their goals in a complex, rapidly changing world. Among CITC's initiatives, the council partnered with Allen's company to build a commercial video game designed to share, celebrate, and extend the tribe's culture with a global audience. Sales of the game generate mission-aligned revenue to support CITC's social programs. The game, titled Never Alone, was developed through an inclusive process with world-class game makers and more than 30 Alaska Native elders, writers, and storytellers. The game is in the Inupiat language, builds on a history or sorry, builds on a story passed down over many generations and includes 26 documentary clips about the culture that get unlocked through gameplay. The game touched a nerve globally. It has been downloaded by 3 million plus players, has been covered widely in the media, and won numerous awards, including a BAFTA, a British Academy Award, and even indirectly led to CITC's launching of a Fab Lab. Through the E-Line Media Partnership, the Tribal Council leadership met Neil, which led to the launching of the Anchorage Fab Lab. This lab is run by Renee Fredericks, director of CITC's Youth Education and Employment Services, in partnership with Katie Lee. The lab's mission is to, con is to combine cutting-edge educational tools with traditional Alaska Native cultural values and strengths. In 2016, Fredericks was recognized at the White House as a champion of change, and that was just the beginning. Let's look at the CITC's future scenario. Flash forward to the year 2030. 30. The CITC Fab Lab has now become a network of distributed labs empowering the entire Alaska Native community. Collectively, they have become global pioneers in empowering their youth to mix traditional culture with many of the world's most advanced technologies. Innovation is happening in many areas. In the urban labs, elders are working with young adults who grew up in the lab to mentor the next generation on bridging the technology on the bridging of technology and culture. In the remote satellite labs, the community is pioneering how to use the knowledge of local materials to solve local challenges, reducing dependencies on inefficient and expensive supply chains. The village labs are now also collaborating with remote cultures across the Arctic and throughout the world jointly working on projects and sharing solutions to common problems.
In fact, there is now a reverse migration from cities to villages as opportunities for sustainable living are becoming more decentralized. The design and operation of a fab lab is also now seamlessly integrated with ancient cultural traditions. The use of a laser cutter to produce scrimshaw is understood as a part of a long progression from the use of stones to metal knives to electric dremel tools in carving scrimshaw. Kids who first learned to design and carve scrim scrimshaw on a laser cutter are also interested in mastering the use of older tools. This is not an accident. The design of the Fab Lab includes workspaces for both modern products and services, as well as traditional crafts and practices. A mix of similar practices are shared with other cultures from around the world, from the most remote parts of the planet to teeming urban centers. Beyond being the place where ancient crafts are appreciated and practiced, Fab Labs are where stories and traditions are passed down from generation to generation. It is now decades since the release of Never Alone, where progressive levels of accomplishment were rewarded with stories and insights by the tribe's elders and community members. Now, traditional storytelling is an everyday occurrence, integrating into the process of making almost anything. Of course, the mentoring process sometimes goes the other way. Kids see what the elders are working on and share a story of their own. Ultimately, what is being fabricated in these labs is continuity in the culture itself. What if fab labs were the crucible for disassembling and reassembling multinational corporations? Large multinational corporations can see the handwriting on the wall. Markets and technologies are, are changing at accelerating rates. Armies of international change agents and external consultants work daily with industry leaders to design and implement strategies for becoming more agile and adaptive. Occasionally, the result is a complete restructuring of the corporation. Sometimes it is a dismantling. The third digital revolution changes the very nature of how things are made and who makes them, forcing many companies to rethink their roles in this changing world. Brazil's Haloisa Neves, a professor and leader in digital fabrication in Sao Paulo, supports fab labs because they change educational and train training attitudes, a priority around the world. Her focus, however, is on how fab labs and makerspaces can change mindsets within industry. Quote, I would like to see this mindset in at least two different spaces, she says. Schools integrated in the curriculum and companies integrated in what they do. She adds, it may be easier for companies to be more open than for the schools, end quote. Toward this goal, we founded, or she founded, WeFab, a makerspace in Sao Paulo that offers consultancy and activities for companies. In this context, she points to a new fab lab that Isvor set up in Bedim, Minas Gerais, Brazil. Isvor, the company, the corporate university of Fiat Chrysler Automobile, LATAM is close to the automobile assembly plant and is open to FCA and the community. Marcia Naves, the director of the Isvor Fab Lab and Paolo Matos and Carolina Marini, the fab managers of Isvor, point out that Isvor has one of the most modern and complete fab labs in South America. But the shiny equipment is not what constitutes the heart of the mission of this lab. Although groups of FCA LATAM employees and people from the community are working together on digital fabrication projects, they are learning more than the principles of digital fabrication. They are building collaborative skills, developing insights into the interaction of people with new technology, and thinking in fresh ways about the future for the company and community.
The East Vor Fab Lab is what social scientists call a boundary object. It sits at the boundary of different company of communities and serves in a bridging role. It enables connections across the boundary that would otherwise not happen. The lab is building in the DNA of what could lead to a compelling and aspirational future for the company and the community. And here is the vision. It is 2030, over a dozen years after the East 4 Fab Lab was launched, and the lab has become a prototype for culture change in many industries all around the world. In each case, they have adopted the 2016 ESVOR model of developing in each person the capacity to adopt any of four personas. The explorer, pioneering new frontiers. The maker, harnessing technology for continuous improvement. The hacker, breaking things apart and finding radically different alternatives. And the networker, connecting the people and ideas as needed. Developing talent across these dimensions rather than around traditional jobs has been the beginning of new ways for corporations to function. Naves was correct in her judgment that industry could move faster than could educational institutions in embracing new, highly disruptive ways of thinking. Fab labs are now seen as essential crucibles where these personas are forged, strengthened, and introduced back into corporate cultures. By 2030, across diverse sectors, people now appreciate that a person operating as a hacker can be both destructive and generative. They understand that people need the time and space to be explorers, and that the whole workforce can be makers, driving continuous improvement. When people adopt the networker persona, they are highly valued. Others recognize that networking is essential connective tissue in organizations that are increasingly organic, almost biological in how they evolve and change. With these four personas, a corporation can be repeatedly disassembled and reassembled as markets change. For FCA and other corporations, the new mindsets had to come quickly. Distinctions between who is a customer, a manufacturer, or a supplier have been blurring to ever greater degrees in the years leading up to 2030. Coming to see every member of the organization as able to be an explorer, a maker, a hacker, and a networker helps everyone embrace the increasing ambiguity around the roles of customer, manufacturer, and supplier. FCA is as much a company service, a service company as it is a producer of cars. Today, hundreds of FCA fab labs around the world serve as crucibles for the new thinking needed to be a new kind of corporation. Thousands of other firms are emulating the model. Back in 2017, Naves said, quote, My passion now is to transform industry, end quote. In 2030, she can look back and see that her early vision of leveraging the technologies and ethos of the Fab Labs is really transforming industry. The final two scenarios are at the frontiers of material science, with one scenario central to the first two stages of Neil's roadmap, and the second centered on the last two stages. In the first scenario, a platform for sharing information on the properties of local materials addresses a key rate limiter for community and personal fabrication, the availability, cost, and environmental impacts of consumable materials used in the digital fabrication process. The second scenario takes us into the future of digital materials and programmable matter. Motivated by the requirements of space exploration, NASA research has the potential to transform how we sustain infrastructure, roads, bridges, buildings, and the like, here on Earth. What if material science became viral? Today, fab labs use digital technologies for design and fabrication, but depend on analog materials as the consumables. 
These materials are often expensive, and they need to be extracted, packaged, and shipped. Many are not environmentally friendly and end up as waste. Although advanced digital materials may one day address this problem, they are still decades away for everyday use. We must learn to fundamentally rethink the physical ingredients that we use for fabrication—wood, cardboard, plastic, metal, and more—or we may well find that exponential growth in digital fabrication will create untenable stress on our environment over the next decade. Alicia Garmulowitz is an assistant professor of circular economy at the Facultad de Administración y Economía, Universidad de Santiago, in Chile. She earned her doctorate from the Saud Business School at Oxford University, where she studied 3D printing in commons environments. Her commitment is to advancing a circular economy, where resources can be continually reused, as opposed to a linear economy, where resources are extracted, used, and discarded. She begins with first principles: quote, "We need to understand the materials that are around us." End quote. Germulowitz points to nature, where organisms source local ingredients and build complex objects from a nano to a macro scale, and continue to reuse all of all the resources. Forests don't create trash. Today, she is launching an open materials database, harnessing the power of distributed knowledge and digital fabrication, so that anyone, anywhere, can make high-performance products using digital designs and the materials around them. Here is the vision. It is now 2025, and Garmulowitz's open platform Materium is integral to the operation of tens of thousands of fab labs around the world. It has become a combined database, social network, and shareable knowledge resource for understanding, sourcing, and using local resources in digital fabrication. Her open platform challenges the model of purchasing plastic pellets to melt down. Metal, metal powder to reconstitute, or other materials through an inefficient, high-carbon footprint global supply chain. Instead, enterprising fabricators and makers are using their local environments in new ways. Sand, plant fiber, natural resins, salt water, and other local materials are being gathered, and their properties and uses documented. Mobile augmented reality technologies have made it possible to create a local geotagged augmented layer of the biological and chemical properties and potential uses of locally available consumables. People can literally walk around their communities and, with the augmented technologies, see trash or desert as accessible natural resources. With fab labs able to structure materials from nano to macro scales, abundant natural materials take on high-performance qualities and even outcompete closely guarded chemical recipes. Rather than patenting new compounds, communities and companies alike begin to invest in novel ways to assemble simple ingredients into almost anything. In the process, appreciation and understanding of the circular economy is expanding exponentially. Around the world, people understand that the circular economy is all about the control of energy, materials, and information. Instead of trying to get corporations to track and trace the products they produce, citizens now have the tools to easily measure the composition and other characteristics of the materials they are using locally, as well as those from around the world. The Materium platform enables mass participation in the production of materials data. Such a capability gives citizens a powerful lever of change for the circular economy. The advances in materium have occurred hand in hand with the sharing and reuse of physical samples in geology and the biological sciences. 
Scientists in these related fields have all encountered the same challenges around what metadata to attach to a given material or physical sample. They all need digital platforms that support distributed input from thousands of sources and that enable efficient search and discovery. Most importantly, they all share a commitment to the open sharing of information. To the biologist and geologist, the advances in fab labs are no surprise. There has long been a tradition of citizen scientists in both domains. In fact, an intergenerational social ecosystem has emerged where biological and geological experts are engaging with teen and young adult science citizens or citizen scientists to document through social video and virtual reality all sorts of fun and imaginative fab projects. Material science has become viral, validated, and social. At first, commercial businesses didn't notice what was going on with Materiome. The platform just seemed to be some fringe activity. After all, Fab Labs represented a tiny percentage of sales for any producer of consumable materials. The first commercial enterprises to take notice were manufacturers in aerospace, automobiles, and other sectors using advanced materials. For these firms, the properties of materials represent closely guarded, competitive secrets. Thus, many in these industries were surprised to see the open-source platform freely sharing information that they thought was uniquely theirs. They were also surprised to find materials in use that they had never encountered before. Of course, for the producers of chemicals and other commercial materials, materium is a competitive threat. They face existential decisions around how to operate in a world of open information and locally sourced materials. For proponents of a circular economy, the open-source platform is a landmark accomplishment. Increasingly, people are using local materials to make what they need with little waste and minimal transportation costs. The adage in politics is, follow the money. In digital fabrication, it is increasingly, follow the materials. What if transportation infrastructure maintained and updated itself? Massive investments in the transportation infrastructure like roads, bridges, railway lines, buildings, and airports are needed in societies around the world. Bridges built with an expected service life of 50 years are in use today, 75 or 100 years after they were built. Airports are operating at two or three times their designed capacity. The Industrial Revolution grew alongside the expanding, expanding transportation infrastructure, which has taken on ever-increasing importance with globalization. As new transportation infrastructure gets built, will it be designed for a world of growing populations, accelerating technology, changing climate, extensive human migration, and unanticipated societal developments? NASA's Kenny Chung sees in digital materials a transformational solution to the problem of aging infrastructure that is performing beyond its designed capability and ex expected service life. Chung earned his PhD from MIT, focusing on the frontiers of material science at CBA. At NASA, his work on digital materials and the underlying algorithms has far-reaching implications for structures in space. After all, it would be dangerous and expensive to bring human construction teams into space. Back here on Earth, the implications may be just as extensive. He is used to look, looking deep into the future, so let's do just that. And here's the vision. It is 2040, and we now understand that the physical masses of bridges, buildings, aircraft, and other parts of societal infrastructure can constantly renew themselves to meet ever-changing service needs. 
Instead of a service life of 50 years for a bridge, digital materials and supporting robots can be engaged in a constant process of inspection, repair, and reconfiguration, all while the bridge remains in active service. Over time, the bridge may look the same, but it will be an entirely new bridge because of the continuous renovation. The bridge can be redesigned over time to have more or less capacity, depending on changing societal and environmental needs. Instead of trying to reprogram people to be more farsighted, we have reprogrammed the materials to sustain themselves, with people guiding the process. In this vision of the future, the supply chain is regional and focuses on the development of an array of modular materials, much as nuts and bolts were produced in 2017. The actual materials are not yet the fully programmable matter of Neil's future, though they are now emerging from, from research around the world. Rather, they are made out of, the, out of the same materials that made up the infrastructure of 2017, only now they are modular and reconfigurable. They are building block components for scalable manufacturing systems and are suitable for digital design and assembly. The same materials are used, such as steel in a bridge. But instead of ordering thousands of unique shapes of steel, each with unique drillings and special delivery to the building site, you can now create many modular components as the primary product when the raw material is first processed. There is no need for the reprocessing involved in previous mass production of finished products. People can work with robotic assemblers to make and remake custom versions of what they need by reconfiguring assemblies of these building blocks. At first, the change was almost imperceptible. It was analogous to the change from physical toll booths on the turnpike to automated sensors collecting the tolls. In a similar way, people began experimenting in fab labs with reconfiguring materials for personal applications. In parallel, industrial providers began identifying raw materials that could be forged into modular, programmable components for targeted applications. The most advanced applications were in space, where the need for configurable components was the greatest. The cost of getting new raw materials and manufacturing or construction teams into space was just too high. This modular approach to transportation infrastructure created a massive transportation dividend in public cost savings. Since forward-thinking policy leaders recognized that this smart, modular infrastructure was coming, they also proactively planned for the worker displacement that followed such automation. Getting ahead of the curve, they laid the foundation for various versions of the Fab City Pledge, the Fab Village Pledge, and Blair's Maxim to ease the transition to an economy with fewer jobs, but higher quality of life and dignity. That is, an economy not as dependent on paid work. Infrastructure self-sufficiency is integral to societal self-sufficiency. These eight scenarios can interweave in complementary ways, building steadily toward a world where people and communities are globally connected and locally self-sufficient. If we want to see these aspirational scenarios converted into reality, we need to begin laying the foundation and building the stable steps to make them happen now. As Gonzalo Rey, who is Moog's chief technology officer, says, quote, You can always look at visions of the future and see many obstacles, but you can also see possible futures and focus on breaking down the obstacles. Most of the obstacles will be social, not technical. He then points out, Neil makes these crazy predictions, but over time they seem to come true. It may not be in the exact form described, but it will be in that direction, end quote. The aim, then, is to tip the balance toward these aspirational but achievable futures. For that, we, we introduce a guiding model. 
predictive transformation. To realize any of these aspirational scenarios, let alone combinations of them, we need to address the threshold challenges identified in Chapter 2. We must promote widespread access to digital fabrication hardware, software, and materials. We need to cultivate the skills and literacies so everyone can effectively leverage these technologies. We need to create an enabling ecosystem to accelerate shared objectives. And we need to ensure the ongoing mitigation of risk. In addition to addressing the threshold challenges, there are enduring tensions that, even if they cannot be completely resolved, must be continually managed. Among the various digital fabrication stakeholders and communities, fab labs, makerspaces, hackerspaces, and so forth, there is a tension between independence and interdependence. Hardware and software developers will need to balance ease of use with making their technology open and extensible. Governance will always struggle between balancing the efficiency of centralization and hierarchy with decentralization and distributed agency. Mentors face a persistent choice between their commitment to teach and their desire to advance their own projects. There will be ongoing tensions between emergent ecosystems and entrenched institutions. As we sought to provide guidance on shaping the third digital revolution, with these aspirational scenarios, threshold challenges, and enduring tensions in mind, we couldn't find a model that was well-matched to the task. In particular, we needed a model that was optimized for both digital and physical worlds with a complex that had a complex mix of distributed stakeholders and interests and didn't depend on a single governing person or entity directing its progress. Through the process of writing this book, we developed such a model that we call predictive transformation. The model is predictive in that it is anchored by a projected technology roadmap based on observable indicators of accelerating digital fabrication capability. It is transformational in that we are not interested in simply projecting, but also in shaping how the technology can co-evolve with the social systems to cultivate positive outcomes for society. We have written this chapter more for the path creators than the path observers. The model builds on and contrasts with many established models of change. Most of the early models, from the dialectic model attributed by Hegel to Kant, thesis, antithesis, and synthesis, through to Kurt Lewin's influential 1947 change model of unfreezing, changing, and refreezing, anticipate transformation and the need for change. But they also assume a linear pace of change, concluding with a new steady state rather than continuous and accelerating change. Current popular organizational change models also conclude with a new steady state rather than an assumption of continual change. For example, John Paul Cotter's 1995 highly cited model for leading change pre presents eight steps for managing change and concludes with institutionalizing the change, a new steady state. Similarly, William Bridges' 2000 model for managing transitions is helpful at the individual level in documenting how people need to let go of the old one before they can embrace the new. Yet, letting go of the old becomes an unending state in a world of exponential technologies. The closest fit to our model is W. Edward Deming's model for continuous change, which is a cycle of plan, do, check, and adjust. Although his model is not designed for harnessing the power of distributed ecosystems and broad societal change, a number of popular models for analyzing patterns or cycles of new technology adoption or impact include Everett Rogers' 1962 Diffusions of Innovation, Jeffrey Moore's 1991 Crossing the Chasm, 
and Clayton Christensen's 1997 Distributive Innovation, or sorry, Disruptive Innovation. The U.S. government has also developed several helpful rubrics, including NASA's Technology Readiness Levels and the Department of Defense's Technology Readiness Assessment to assess the maturity level of particular technology. Although all these models have valuable insights for introducing technologies into markets or channels, none combines the analysis of continuously accelerating technology with mechanisms to engage and empower diverse, independent stakeholders around aligned social impact objectives. We designed the predictive transformation model for the third digital revolution, but the framework could be relevant for identifying and shaping other accelerating technologies. Of course, this proposed model is just one of many possible ways to organize thought and action going forward in a world of accelerating technologies. The model is structured around the following four phases and activities within each phase. Anticipate rates of change. Align stakeholders. Cultivate enabling ecosystems. Co-evolve technology and society. Since the model requires a clear understanding of accelerating technologies, it assumes continual cross-sector collaboration among scientists, technologists, and social scientists, as well as storytellers, policymakers, facilitators, and others. Like all models, it is not a recipe. Rather, it is designed as a framework to help inform the process and suggest enabling platforms, tools, and practices that can be adopted, adapted, and extended by distributed stakeholders. The model should be flexible, adaptable, and extensible to work in a variety of contexts at local, regional, national, and international levels. Although the model has four elements that are presented here in sequence, the interactions are dynamic. The figure on the previous page suggests that the first three parts of the model, observing rates of change, aligning stakeholders, and cultivating emergent ecosystems are relatively sequential. But when each phase makes progress, it contributes to the co-evolution of technology and society. Furthermore, it is a continuous cycle, a spiral that continues upward as long as there are stabilizing efforts, scaffolding, to hold all the gains along the way. Since a book is, for the most part, linear in presentation, we address each phase of the model sequentially. In the final section, on co-evolution, we can most clearly see the synthesis. Anticipate rates of change. All the aspirational scenarios we described, and many others that are emerging, are built on an assumption of continued exponential improvement of digital fabrication performance. Thinking in exponential terms rather than linear is not instinctive. Thus, we begin our model with the need to anticipate the rates of change of digital fabrication technologies. This requires a basic understanding of the underlying science driving the accelerations, as well as the active research roadmap. When co-evolution pioneer Stuart Brand was asked, what do you consider the most interesting recent scientific news in a 2016 online salon query from agent and thought leader John Brockman, Brand's response was instructive, quote, science is the only news. When you scan through a newspaper or a magazine, all the human interest stuff is the same old he, sh he said, she said. The politics and economics, the same sorry cyclic dramas. The fashions, a pathetic illusion of newness. And even the technology is predictable if you know the science. Human nature doesn't change much. Science does, and the change accrues, altering the world irreversibly. We now live in a world in which the rate of change is the biggest change. Science has thus become the big story. End quote. 
Brand says that the technology can become predictable if you know the science. In our model, we urge an initial focus on understanding the science and how it provides the framework for the research roadmap as well as opportunities and risks for society. In our survey of leaders, leaders in digital fabrication, we asked about the importance of understanding the underlying science of digital communication, computation, and fabrication. The responses suggest that for over 70% of the stakeholders, an understanding of the underlying science is very important. At the same time, nearly 40% said that it was hard to do. These responses are illustrated with the same visualizations that were used in Chapter 2, with the middle representing the central tendency and the outliers on the outside. As this indicates, there is a wide variety of responses on difficulty. Improvement is difficult when there is a great deal of variability within a system. For those wanting to understand and thoughtfully debate rates of change, Neil's chapters are required reading. That doesn't mean you have to agree with all of his assumptions, but it is an informed starting point for discussion and debate. At present, only about a quarter of the fab leaders report that it is very easy to understand the underlying science. Throughout the writing of this book, we continually pushed Neil to make the more scientific or technological-focused sections more accessible, both for us and for the readers, as the material he covers is necessary to understand likely rates of change. The more we understood the science and technology roadmap, the more we understood the critical steps in shaping the third digital revolution. The shared understanding of the underlying science also led to the codification of Lass's Law, which helped organize our thinking. This also helped ensure that we weren't talking past each other when discussing digital fabrication performance, making our collaboration more effective. Interrogating Lass's Law The rates of change in the digital fabrication roadmap may accelerate or decelerate over time, much as in 1975, Gordon Moore revised his projection from digital computing performance doubling every year to every two years. Still, the core definition of digital computation performance remained consistent for Moore, and that needs to be true for digital fabrication as well, so that discussions and debates on rates of change are using the same measuring stick. For Lass's Law, as discussed throughout the book, we use this definition for digital fabrication performance. The equivalent capability of today's fab labs to make almost anything, fabricating physical forms and programming their functions. Agreeing on the definition of digital fabrication performance is essential to enable diverse stakeholders to effectively discuss, debate, anticipate, and shape the social implications of the projected roadmap and rate of change. There is a cottage industry of futurists, pundits, and journalists who make projections about the future of technology and society. Most of these observers assume that the future of digital fabrication is simply better, faster, cheaper 3D printers. Their conclusion is a good indication that they have not meaningfully immersed themselves in the technology. Unfortunately, this lack of awareness is also a problem with many educators, policymakers, philanthropists, and investors. As we have shown throughout this book, 3D printing is an important additive process for digital fabrication but it is only one tool with the broader capabilities of a fab lab. As Neil points out, seeing the future of digital fabrication through the sole lens of 3D printing is like seeing the future of cooking through the sole lens of microwave ovens. Given the complexity of emerging technologies, many people are understandably hesitant to look around the corner into the future and make predictions about technology trajectories that can inform action. We certainly see this reluctance in many social scientists and policy makers. 
Indeed, it is commonplace in academic presentations, particularly by junior scholars, to feature the quote, making predictions is hard, particularly about the future, which is variously attributed to Niels Bohr, Samuel Goldwyn, Yogi Berra, Mark Twain, Nostradamus, and others. In the context of an academic talk, it might be seen as a form of self-deprecating humor, yet it has the subtle but unmistakable impact of reinforcing a bias toward a small incremental prediction and avoiding anything that might be seen as standing out from the crowd. Even some of the most sophisticated thinkers and practitioners from the first two digital revolutions take a cautious stance. In their recent book, Whiplash, How to Survive Our Faster Future, Neil's colleague Joy Ito, director of the MIT Media Lab and co-author Jeff Howe, a contributing editor to Wired magazine, strongly assert that no one can predict the future and it is a fool's errand to try. Together, they then recommend nine organizing principles for navigating exponential change. Among the recommendations, they suggest prioritizing emergence over authority, pull over push, risk over safety, and systems over objects. All the principles are designed to address the observation that, quote, our current cognitive toolset leaves us ill-equipped to comprehend the profound implications posed by rapid advances in everything from communication to warfare, end quote. Although their nine principles are full of great insights into new mindsets that foster agency and collaboration in the digital age, we agree with Ito and Howe's assertion that the pace of change is moving so fast that prediction is not advised. They make this point to foster self-reliance and flexibility, the importance, as they put it, of having a compass rather than a map. In contrast, we believe that you cannot foster the needed agency without roadmaps so that distributed individuals can be empowered to collectively debate, discuss, and ultimately help, accelerate, decelerate, and otherwise change the roadmap. You need both a compass and a map. A more forward-thinking attitude can enable observations to go from aspirational projections to collective action, using many of Ido and Howe's principles to help to realize these projections. As management sage Pete Drucker said, along with many others accredited to the comment, the best way to predict the future is to create it. In this sense, anticipating rates of change is a team sport and a hands-on activity. Gordon Moore was very precise in his original observation of digital computing performance. He observed that the number of transistors per square inch on integrated circuits was doubling every year, and he recognized the implications of this rate of change if it continued. Over time, however, Moore's law came to represent many interrelated technologies that were enabling computing capability to become exponentially better, faster, and cheaper, and thereby transform society. For digital fabrication, Lass's law projects that digital fabrication performance will double every year and a half in light of past indicators and the current research roadmap. Whether this rate of change holds is very much up to all the stakeholders who, literally, have a stake in this exponential rate of change. If, like Moore's law, Lass's law evolves from an observation to a benchmark to a collective objective across diverse stakeholders, then, as we noted in Chapter 4, we may indeed see digital fabrication performance increase at a rate similar to Moore's law for the next half century. With observable data, a clear definition, and informed projections in hand, we can anticipate and envision what the third revolution might look like. 
We collaborated with FAB leaders to draft the scenarios opening this chapter, beginning with current data considering what would happen if things were to unfold in transformative ways. On the analytics side, we have drawn a graph that corresponds to the four stages in Neil's roadmap. This graph illustrates how each successive technology will grow at a faster rate of change, and when it catches up to the preceding technology, the preceding one is likely to level off forming the sigmoid curves that Neil mentioned in Chapter 3. The exact trajectories can't be precisely specified, and the graph is not to scale. We could not make both fit on a page and indicate the shape of the first two curves. Our point is to illustrate and thus anticipate the reality of successive waves of accelerating change. The figure signals the scale and scope of the social challenge. Individuals, organizations, and and institutions face a challenge in keeping pace with the rate of community fabrication because they must ensure the success of tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of community fab labs. The task gets more difficult when we try to keep pace with the next curve, personal fabrication, and need to enable millions of early adopters to succeed with their own personal fabrication technology. The task becomes breathtaking when we are matching social systems to the final two curves where we are operating on the scale of billions of individuals or trillions of things. Approaching the scale of anticipating rates of change analytically is instructive, but only goes so far. This is where the diverse disciplines come in, providing alternative perspectives and future visions that are grounded in the data. The data and its visualization help make visible the probable futures and lay the foundation for aligning stakeholders, path observers with path creators, technical and social, to come together and co-create preferable futures. Aligning Stakeholders Throughout the book, we have highlighted a rich tapestry of stakeholder engagement, actively engaged in the FAB community and broader maker movement, including... Fabbers, makers, and hackers, hardware providers, software providers, material providers, researchers, educators, government policymakers, community organizers, philanthropists, investors, industry leaders and workers, service providers, media leaders, and families. In working towards stakeholder alignment, even specifying the stakeholder categories is instructive. Most stakeholders operate with mental maps that only encompass parts of the list. So, stepping back to consider the full list is a first step. A second step involves a deeper appreciation that none of these groups are monolithic and many individuals have identities tied to more than one of these groups. Moreover, the interests, what some would call the value propositions with respect to digital fabrication, for these stakeholders are both common and competing, and all these interests are dynamic. In such a context, progress depends on having sufficient alignment among stakeholders to enable collective action. Invariably, the initial alignment will be among just some of the stakeholders on some of the interests. As we will see shortly, these small agreements can then build toward broader agreements. Joel's research team defines stakeholder alignment as, quote, the process by which independent but interdependent individuals, groups, and organizations orient and connect to advance their separate and shared interests, end quote. This approach is different from how most people use the term stakeholder. Typically, people talk about stakeholder management and stakeholder engagement. When people say they need to do stakeholder management, they are usually saying that these are parties whose opposition is anticipated and needs to be neutralized. 
When people say they need to do stakeholder engagement, they are usually saying that there are parties whose support is desired and needs to be included. Both stakeholder management, i.e. dealing with opposition, and stakeholder engagement, i.e. building on enthusiasm, are important but incomplete. In addition, stakeholder alignment is needed. This dynamic process assumes that there will be a mix of common and competing interests, requiring a continuing process of dialogue, discovery, negotiation, and action. Power differences and other dynamics need to be taken into account, and progress is ultimately achieved when there is sufficient alignment among independent but interdependent parties to support collective action. Small agreements lead to grand bargains. Although there are broad, sector-wide goals held by most of the global FAB stakeholders, goals such as ensuring FAB access and literacy, there are often specific goals that are shared by a much smaller group of stakeholders where they can be short-term gains and momentum building. Progress is most likely when groups of stakeholders accept that most interests are negotiable. Even though some red lines can't be crossed, history shows that interests can change when new opinions are identified and circumstances shift. Ultimately, society's institutions are a product of patterned behaviors, including the patterned agreements. Coalitions and small agreements among stakeholders, building on dialogue about their, retrospective their respective interests, can add up over time to form grand bargains addressing the biggest challenges facing society. Thus, grand bargains build on multiple smaller agreements, which rest, in turn, on the constructive integration of stakeholders and their interests. As Greg Bayer from the Grable Foundation points out when talking about the emergence of remake learning, quote, much of the collective impact came from many small decisions made across the network, end quote. Progress was made through a variety of flexible small grants that encouraged stakeholder, stakeholders to take risks and experiment together. Over time, this approach led to a great many insights, programs, and initiatives that helped shape the larger vision of reshaping the future of teaching and learning in the greater Pittsburgh region. There is also an interesting connection between small agreements leading to larger goals and the intersection of human psychology and game design. A Hungarian scientist, Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi, developed the concept of flow. He found that when a person's skill is too low and the task is too hard, people become anxious and frustrated. However, if the task is too easy and the skill is too high, people become bored and disengaged. When the skill and difficulty are roughly proportional, people enter a flow state, especially if they are working toward personal, meaningful goals. In his book, Good Business, Leadership, Flow, and the Me Making of Meaning, he describes flow as a state of concentration or complete absorption with a given activity and situation, a state in which people are happiest. Since games are all about giving the player agency to make decisions and providing continual feedback to help them on their path to mastery in the context of the goals of the game, game designers are particularly good at designing flow states. They have also learned to design for collective flow, where teams and communities can continually take on small challenges that lead to larger goals. Often, big societal issues like addressing climate change or ensuring universal fab inclusion can be overwhelming. It is essential, therefore, to break these large challenges into achievable steps where everyone feels like their actions matter, that they are making a difference, and that they are part of a large movement making progress toward a collective goal. Build trust. 
Another key element of remake learning success is in aligning diverse stakeholders in Pittsburgh with prioritizing time to build trust through informal social interactions. Things started slow with a series of pancake breakfasts, but over time, each event drew in ever greater numbers as people reached out through their personal networks and brought in two or three more people who they knew just had to be in the room. To ensure that community fabrication reaches its full potential, communities, regions, and even entire networks need the equivalent of pancake breakfasts. For example, when the network of fab labs or makerspaces is being ruled out, debates often surface around the terminology to be used. Fab labs, makerspaces, hackerspaces, or some all-encompassing umbrella term. The debate is not just about words. The underlying cultures and operating practices are related but distinct in these different domains. There are also likely to be debates among the potential hosts for community digital fabrication. Should the hosts be in libraries, K-12 schools, community colleges, universities, museums, or freestanding community centers? Will the vision be compromised or advanced if it is an even split among these six possible hosting options? Universities often have great resources but can't always offer open community access. Community centers and libraries have open access but don't often have experience with new and complex technologies. Ultimately, an essential ingredient for setting up and effectively running local labs is adequate time to build trust and clear communication across stakeholders. In this spirit, when success depends on aligned actions across independent and interdependent stakeholders, it is essential to take the time to build a culture of trust and respect so that everyone is collaboratively solving problems, but each is still respectful of each organization's independent objectives, capabilities, and constraints. In some cases, of course, interests are not just different but opposed. The Never Alone backstory illustrates building trust across diverse stakeholders with shared interests. Before launching game development, the Cook Inlet Tribal Council and Eline devoted months to building trust, spending time in each other's worlds, and getting to know each other's families and communities. As partners, both organizations dedicated time to designing deal terms to ensure they were in the same shoes, working toward aligned impact and financial objectives with shared governance. This way, when challenges arose, and many did, the partners could take advantage of their diverse perspectives and skills to solve problems together. The result was not only a successful and evocative video game, but also a much deeper partnership that included a portfolio of initiatives including fab-related products and services. Reduce Variance As we described in Chapter 2, the fab, maker, hacker, tech shop, and other related communities certainly have shared interests, but also vary varying priorities, methodologies, and community norms. Understanding these variances is important because a fundamental principle of systems change is that you have to reduce variation before you can improve with collective action. The following figure shows a hypothetical dart game that helps illustrate the point. In this game, the player on the left has the higher score this round. However, the player on the right is easier to coach. Just shift everything up and over a little bit. In contrast, if the player on the left were instructed to go up or a little or down a little, the result would be just more variation. By analogy, improving the highly variable social system associated with digital fabrication, even at this early stage, first involves reducing the variation. But you can't even begin to reduce variation if you don't understand the stakeholders, their interests, and how these interests evolve over time. 
in many of the Z flowers presented in, in this book, the variance is high, bimodal in fact. Improvement can't just center on trying to move the means. Of course, if you don't know where the bullseye is, then the approach of the player on the left could make more sense. Reducing variation must always be balanced with maintaining a diversity of ideas. In light of our stakeholder alignment analysis, we do have a few bullseyes in mind. Across all the FAB stakeholders we interviewed, we found very strong alignment around the importance of addressing two key threshold challenges, universal FAB access and literacy. This is reflected in the priority given to open access for FAB labs and is clearly highlighted in the FAB charter. Achieving universal FAB access won't be easy. It will require aligned and sustained efforts across a diverse community of distributed individuals, organizations, and institutions, and importantly, the support of an enabling ecosystem. Cultivating Enabling Ecosystems Once stakeholders understand projected rates of change and are sufficiently aligned around shared goals, such as universal FAB access and literacy, the key mechanism for action centers on cultivating enabling ecosystems. Enabling ecosystems can help advance common interests and navigate competing interests, all at exponential rates of change. In Chapter 2, we identified the need for cultivating an enabling FAB ecosystem as a threshold challenge for realizing the ambitious goal of universal FAB access and literacy. In particular, we highlighted certain essential elements of such an overall FAB ecosystem, including a diverse mix of public, private, and philanthropic financing for FAB initiatives, effective collaboration and sharing within and across FAB labs, widely distributed mentorship and leadership for digital fabrication, open and robust marketplaces for fab products and services, agile governance mechanisms aligned with the values of the emerging fab community. Without these elements, each of which can be thought of as having its own ecosystem, digital fabrication technologies will not expand in performance and reach consistent with Neil's roadmap. This will significantly reduce our ability to leverage fab technologies to improve society and simultaneously increase the likelihood of destabilizing fab divides. Cultivating an enabling fab ecosystem will require a blend of top-down scaling initiatives as well as middle-out and bottom-up propagation. The top-down scaling will be necessary for large-scale investments in infrastructure and research, while the middle-out and bottom-up propagation will be necessary to engage and empower a diverse mix of global stakeholders with a complex range of motivations, interests, skills, and operating in very different regional contexts. The top-down models are familiar. What is new here is cultivating ecosystems. The work of cultivating ecosystems is a widely shared opportunity and responsibility. All stakeholders need to think like system architects since their distributed cultivating behaviors are, in effect, creating the ecosystem. In outlining the overall strategy for cultivating, enabling ecosystems, we start with government and large non-governmental institutions, NGOs, who have the, uh, the capability to launch initiatives beyond the scope of most organizations and individuals similar to pivotal early investments to develop the internet. Concurrent with the role of these public interest institutions is the role of the private sector, similar to the early investment of Intel and other pioneering digital companies. Innovators in universities, both social and technical, and social entrepreneurs make up the third leg of the ecosystem. 
The alignment of these stakeholders is not a one-time event, but a continuing accomplishment, advancing progress toward the threshold challenges of universal fab access and literacy, our primary focus here, and other threshold challenges such as risk mitigation. Government and NGOs There are certain initiatives that can happen only at a scale and scope provided by governments and large NGOs. While some of these initiatives will need to be built from scratch, many can be built on existing digital access and literacy initiatives. These initiatives have already developed multi-stakeholder partnerships as well as critical infrastructure that could be a significant rate accelerator for the third digital revolution. A relevant international example is the World Bank's Global Connect initiative, which aims to bring 1.5 billion people online by 2020. Significant international, human, political, and financial capital, along with cross-sector stakeholder alignment, has gone into developing this initiative. Launching the initiative has required years of trust-building among those wanting to ensure that everyone benefits from essential digital technologies. Similarly, President Obama's Connected Initiative, part of the Federal Communication Commission's E-Rate programs, aimed to connect 99% of American students to high-speed broadband in their classrooms by 2018. Real progress has been made toward this goal. Rather than starting from scratch, forward-thinking government and NGO leaders can build on these and other digital access initiatives to accelerate FAB access. There are also FAB-specific government initiatives that can be rapidly accelerated. For example, the National Fab Lab Network proposed by Representative Bill Foster and described in Chapter 1. This is a rare example of a truly bipartisan initiative in an often divided Congress. Since digital fabrication represents an approach to next-generation manufacturing where capabilities remain local but knowledge sharing is global, it cuts through the false dichotomy between global connectivity and local self-sufficiency. Making these benefits clear and visible to the public will be essential. When we asked Kamar Garge, who worked in education and technology issues at the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy, about building support for digital and fab access, he expressed the importance of making access connect to people emotionally. Quote, It is important to talk about everyday realities that will really grab people, such as kids sitting in the parking lot of McDonald's to get internet access to do their homework because they might not have it at home. Ensuring access is a valuable public investment, and it is much easier to build inclusion in by design early on when the technology is still being shaped. It is much harder to do so later, end quote. As digital fabrication technologies develop, the role of government and leading NGOs will evolve. Today, these institutions can use their unique capabilities, e.g. ability to convene, evangelize, incentivize, and in some cases fund, to expand the network of community and school fab labs. They can also leverage their ability to catalyze foundational research to help accelerate the later stages of the digital fabrication roadmap where technology is currently the rate limiter. Philanthropy and Impact Investors Addressing fab access and literacy will require significant investment from a variety of sources, public, private, and philanthropic. Private investment will follow the demands or projected demands of the market, but these investments will not sufficiently advance FAB access and FAB literacy. Philanthropic and public investments will directly focus on these societal objectives, 
but are most effective as catalysts rather than as sustaining sources of support. Traditionally, philanthropic and private investment have been seen as two ends of the investment spectrum, philanthropic seeking social impact and private seeking market-based returns. There is now a third element, which is the growing social impact investment sector that uses market-based mechanisms to make social impact. All of the above will be essential to tackling the threshold challenges of fab access and literacy and are described here in sufficient detail so that they can be effectively navigated by the fab community. Starting with philanthropy, there is a great opportunity for a leading philanthropy or an emerging family foundation to become the Carnegie of community and school fab labs. As mentioned previously, the Carnegie model of supporting open access public libraries is a clear analog to supporting community, open access, public fab labs. Although he was often brutal in his business practices, Carnegie was transformational in philanthropy. Over the span of a few decades, he funded more than 2,500 libraries. Before Carnegie, the concept of the public library was not commonplace. After, it became a natural assumption that every major city and town would have a public library, an assumption that has held for more than a century. A forward-thinking philanthropist could accomplish a similar transformation for community and school fab labs. Forbes estimates that there are more than 1,800 billionaires with a combined wealth of $7 trillion. Over 130 of these billionaires have taken the Gates Buffett pledge to give most of their wealth away to benefit society. Many of these billionaires made their wealth in the first two digital revolutions and are interested in using new technologies for social good. Many want to support education, community development, and entrepreneurship and are looking to make a lasting positive impact on society. Funding a local, regional, national, or even global network of fab labs meets all these requirements. Local, national, and international philanthropy has been critical to the initial 10 years of fab lab growth, primarily with a focus on setting up and sustaining individual fab labs. It is now time for more ambitious philanthropic initiatives. As the, member of public, as the number of community and school fab labs grows, we can learn a further lesson from Carnegie's library initiative. John Leslie King, former dean of the University of Michigan School of Information, reminds us what happened in the early stages of the Carnegie rollout. Quote, A few years after Carnegie started building the libraries across North America, they were failing in droves. The Carnegie Library Commission asked leading experts to find out why. Their report said that it was because there were no librarians, and there were no librarians because there were no library schools. The technology, the materials and buildings, was essential, but by itself was not enough. There must be people who can build and maintain the systems, end quote. In many ways, the schools of library science, many of which have rebranded themselves as schools of information, were the enabling platforms of an earlier era. They taught the enabling practices to provide society with the qualified people to serve as guides, coaches, and mentors. In addition to private investment in fab products and services and philanthropic investment, there is a third type of investment, social impact investment, that has a crucial sustaining element. Social impact investing operates under various banners, double bottom line of financial and social, triple bottom line, financial, social, and, and environmental, blended value, program-related investing, mission-related investing, and some other emerging models. 
By investing in both financial and social impact, it ensures alignment between investors and entrepreneurs, allowing for co-evolution of the market development and social impact. Today, most social impact investing is focused on community development, the environment, and increasingly, workforce development and education. Although digital fabrication touches on all of these impact areas, the sector is not on the radar of most impact investors and many fab social entrepreneurs are not aware of the growing impact investing sector. To help address this knowledge gap, we offer a high-level overview of the emerging social investment ecosystem. Social impact impact investing ranges from angel investor networks like Investors Circle that typically invest in social impact startups in the $50,000 to $3 million U.S. dollar range to social impact venture funds such as the Omidyar Network, launched by Pierre Omidyar, the founder of eBay, to focus to impact private to impact focused private equity funds such as Bain Capital's $390 million double impact fund led by former Massachusetts Governor Devil Patrick. There are now hundreds of social impact investment funds, many tracked by the Global Impact Investing Network, GIIN, and conferences such as SOCAP focused entirely on social impact investing. An increasing number of leading philanthropies are also exploring social impact investing vehicles. This includes mission-related investing, MRI, where foundations use their endowment investment portfolio to advance their philanthropic mission. Ford Foundation President Darren Walker recently announced that the foundation committed up to a billion dollars for mission-related investments over the next 10 years, and many others are following. Program-related investing, PRIs, is a related investment approach that foundations pursue out of their grant-giving arm to diversify their impact portfolio, attract new social entrepreneurs, and stretch or recycle their capital. PRIs have a variety of structures, ranging from low-interest loans and loan guarantees to equity investments with with impact-friendly terms. Since many foundations and social impact investors have a low risk tolerance, especially when operating in new sectors, the FAB ecosystem offers some low-risk investment opportunities. For example, FAB-related services. One of the most important and least sexy parts of launching a FAB lab includes the logistics of setting up a lab, procuring the necessary insurance and permits, maintaining and upgrading the equipment, ensuring safety, and all the other operational requirements of the day-to-day running of a lab. Addressing this challenge will also be a key part of cultivating an enabling FAB ecosystem. For a long time, Sherry Lassiter and her tireless cohort of globe-trotting graduate students would take on this role, but they don't scale. Indeed, the the students graduate. This is why the FAB Foundation was established, and it is well-positioned to be a platform for these services. Others may see this as a a low-risk investment opportunity since there is already a demand for these services and they can generate early revenue. Academia. At the very core of an enabling FAB ecosystem is the continued technological advancements ensuring Lass's Law maintains its exponential trajectory. The fundamental research that Neil and his colleagues are doing at the CBA, along with work by similar research organizations around the world, are essential to realizing this goal. The continuation of Lass's Law requires expanded support for basic digital fabrication research, as well as a strong iteration loop between the basic and applied research. 
ensuring that the technology develops in a way that accelerates universal fab access and literacy requires integration of science and social science research. The needed alignment across stakeholders in higher education is a considerable challenge under the current structures and cultures of universities, government labs, and private research labs. As we noted in Chapter 4, there are incentives in these domains that drive conservative behaviors and undercut collective action. Neil had to establish CBA to do what he does. It didn't fit into any established academic categories. There is also a divide between research in the physical sciences and research in the social sciences. The opportunity is to build out a more robust ecosystem within and across the research communities, facilitating sharing of data, tools, and models fostering interdisciplinary collaboration, and pioneering new organizational and institutional models. Russ Schilling, former executive director for STEM education at the U.S. Department of Education and a former DARPA program officer, echoes this point. Quote, research that deals with inherently noisy data, such as the behavioral sciences and education, could benefit immensely from iterative research practices that erase the disconnects between basic and applied research, end quote. As Russ suggests, disconnects between basic and applied research are endemic to the social sciences. Bridging that gap, combining the work of path observers and path creators, as well as scientists and social scientists, will enable synergy across very diverse ecosystems that impact research priorities and how the research translates into early products and services. Social Entrepreneurs for fab social entrepreneurs who don't have the resources of governments, NGOs, and leading philanthropies, there is a great opportunity to de develop ideas that can propagate through a thoughtful mix of platforms, tools, and practices. Currently, there are large gaps in the fab ecosystem that ideally can be filled by impact-focused entrepreneurs that leverage a distributed network or of empowered and empowering, deeply committed stakeholders, as well as millions of engaged participations. Many of the fab pioneers we have profiled in this book, at, and many more throughout the world, are working on projects that have the potential to emerge as globally transformative ecosystems. When these ecosystems, which share many of the same core objectives, emerge and intersect, the seemingly insurmountable challenges, such as universal fab access, can become less overwhelming. For example, if Alicia Garmulowitz is able to develop an effective platform with the associated tools and practices for sourcing and sharing local fab materials, and Yogesh Kulkarni is able to do the same for distributed rural fab capability, and Dinah Elzavfali can do the same for developing fab literacy, each of these ecosystems could significantly accelerate the other. These fab pioneers may choose to create new ecosystems, or they may choose to adapt and extend platforms developed by other fab pioneers. There are a great many opportunities for social entrepreneurs to leverage new and emerging technologies that could be powerful elements of an enabling fab ecosystem. For example, consider augmented and virtual reality, as well as new location-aware technologies. Currently, much of the distributed fab mentoring is done through video conferencing, which has capacity issues. Augmented reality solutions might serve as more scalable models over time. Similarly, there could be great value in creating simulated fab lab environments in virtual reality, where an individual with no fab access could at least get a virtual experience. New, location-aware technologies can also play a key role in a layered fab system. 
the multi-layered and distributed array of labs could be integrated into a location-aware mobile app that tracks fab capability and open access in any given location. If there is no capability locally, the app could also provide advice on how to launch a fab lab, a fab-enabled makerspace, or a single piece of equipment fab capability that could grow over time. This would be a valuable addition to an enabling ecosystem. Two personal examples. Two specific aspects of contributing to the cultivation of an enabling FAB ecosystem can be illustrated with respect to platforms for FAB stakeholder alignment and FAB literacy, domains that map onto the work that Joel and Alan do. These personal examples are just two among the many relevant examples of how people from very different disciplines can add value to the FAB ecosystem. Throughout this book, we've highlighted numerous areas where independent but interdependent stakeholders need to align to accomplish goals around common interests, while navigating interests that may be in conflict. To help enable this alignment process, Joel has the goal of developing a platform for stakeholder alignment in complex ecosystems. The visualizations and analytics that he and his colleagues have developed are a step in that direction. Such a platform would support the specification of different types of stakeholders at appropriate levels of granularity and the identification of relevant interest, what is at stake. Then, such a platform would support the collection of data needed so that the architects of the platforms could see where there are points of alignment or misalignment. This would allow for pursuing low-hanging fruit, avoiding dead ends, and planning for complex terrain that must, nevertheless, be navigated. A good example of where such a platform could be a powerful rate accelerator would be around the aligning of stakeholders in support of common standards and protocols. This would, in turn, enable better collaboration across the current fragmented ecosystem of open source and proprietary hardware and software. Because the technology is constantly evolving, the use of the alignment platform would be an ongoing process. Another pivotal point of alignment would be among public and private investors in FAB access. Not only might this avoid duplication and reveal synergies, but it would, be, it would enable lateral alignment on metrics for demonstrated impact, a must-have for impact investors, and other enabling aspects of the investment ecosystem. In effect, a stakeholder alignment platform can be thought of as a platform multiplier, making the development of other needed platforms faster and more effective. Another area where such a platform could be leveraged is to help align different levels of ambition and capability across diverse stakeholders. For example, some stakeholders are committed to being systems architects, while others may or may not want to take on this role. They may, instead, prefer to be part of the empowered and empowering middle on a platform developed by someone else, which enables their aspirations. Ecosystems with platforms, tools, and process enable agency, but not everyone wants to have the same degree of agency with respect to a given ecosystem. Some will be architects, some the empowered and empowering middle, and some the distributed contributors. If there were a platform supporting, supporting stakeholder alignment, it would be, in effect, a meta-platform accelerating the cultivation of many other platforms in enabling ecosystems. In advancing FAB literacy, the FAB Academy is optimized for advanced students with access to full FAB Lab capabilities. There is a need for many types of formal and informal learning trajectories to cultivate FAB literacy among people of various ages, skills, and across different regions. These programs will need to be anchored in hands-on, project-based learning. 
In this area, there are insights that the emerging fab-based learning community can benefit from those who have spent the last decade developing games-based learning platforms, tools, and practices. This is the area that Alan works in. Both game-based and fab-based learning involve projects where people learn by doing. When effectively implemented, both cultivate an environment for highly collaborative and passion-driven learning connected to real-world tools and communities of practice. Digital fabrication is hard, but difficult endeavors can still be engaging, empowering, and exhilarating, a challenge at the heart of good game design. Gamers are continually learning to master complex, technology-mediated experiences to accomplish goals they are personally invested in. Well-designing well -designing games offer a delicate balance of, of challenge and rewards, driving deep levels of engagement and enabling players to advance at their own pace, acquire critical knowledge just in time versus just in case, and iterate according to copious feedback from the game, peers, mentors, and the community. This connection between game-based learning and FAB literacy is at the core of the partnership across Eline Media, the FAB Foundation, and CBA. As more individuals and organizations pioneer new approaches to FAB-based learning, there is a great opportunity to, to develop platforms, tools, and practices for sharing everything from project ideas to teacher professional developments to assessments. In this context, assessments are more about building a portfolio of individual and team-based projects rather than about high-stakes testing, often divorced from a real-world context. As Neil highlighted in Chapter 1, FAB portfolios are already becoming an integral part of the FAB Academy accreditation process. This could be true for all levels of education. Embedded Ecosystems like stakeholder alignment, cultivating ecosystems is not a one-time task, but a continuing accomplishment. Further, multiple embedded ecosystems are involved, each of which is in some ways independent and in some ways interdependent. Additionally, they operate as a layered system where the enabling platforms, tools, and practices function in similar but distinct ways for individuals, communities, and global systems. Although there is also the need for top-down catalyzing initiatives, we highlight cultivating ecosystems in the model since that is the key to enabling social systems to keep pace with accelerating technological change. These bottom-up and crucially middle-out change processes employing platforms, tools, and processes enables the propagation needed for constructive co-evolution of society and technology. Further, it is possible also to then take into account other socio-technical ecosystems, such as those for artificial intelligence, robotics, biomedicine, and autonomous transportation that are relevant for the broader co-evolution of society and technology. Indeed, it is even possible to envision the co-evolution with ecosystems in nature, as is illustrated by this observation by Beno Juarez who grew up in the Amazonian jungles of Peru and is the architect of a floating fab lab in the Amazon that is oriented toward the biodiversity of the region. The lab is focusing on ways to print edible parts of a healthy diet with nutrients from the jungle and sensors to detect water contamination. As, B as Benno notes, quote, the floating fab lab connects to a different lifestyle in the jungle as compared to the city. Your scale changes in the jungle. You feel more connected to the planet. He adds that the floating fab lab is a meeting of two rivers, technology and local culture, creating a new current, end quote. 
Co-evolve, technology and society. The third digital revolution will not happen in isolation. The roadmap will unfold in a world of concurrent and complex economic, environmental, demographic, and socio-political change. It will influence and be influenced by broader economic trends, such as technological unemployment and globalization, demographic trends such as the aging population and mass migration, environmental trends such as climate change and resource depletion, and political dynamics such as polarization and gridlock. Unlike the process of coevolution in nature, the coevolution of technology and society involves choices and actions. It is not just a matter of riding the wave, but involves influencing coevolution's direction and impact, which is not easy to do. Coevolution draws on all three parts of the model: observe, align, and cultivate in a continuing cycle of change. Among economic changes, the most pressing coevolution dynamic lies at the intersection of everyone's ability to make almost anything and the growing job displacement associated with accelerating technologies. In his 2015 book *Rise of the Robots*, Martin Ford argues that advances in AI, automation, and robotics will increasingly replace both blue and white-collar jobs, and that these declines will, in turn, reduce tax revenues. This soaring technological unemployment and growing income and wealth inequality, when coupled with the accelerating costs of supporting an aging population and addressing the implications of climate change, could lead to a crippling downward spiral in society. In this scenario, the worst tendencies in human nature will be magnified by the growing desperation and anger of the displaced. If this trajectory were to unfold, the third digital revolution could be a central part of the solution. Ford, like numerous other observers of accelerating job loss to technology, recommends some form of basic guaranteed income with carefully tuned incentives. Although the suggestion is emerging as a serious political debate, one of the biggest issues with the solution is addressing the loss of dignity and purpose that comes with the loss of a job. If, however, a basic guaranteed income also came with training in using digital fabrication for people to increasingly make what they consume, there is opportunity for both economic and psychosocial benefit. It is not a post-scarcity economy, but rather a post-salary economy. In that case, it's a race. It will not be easy for digital fabrication to match and exceed the pace of technological displacement. However, if we make Lasse's law a reality and we see a billion-fold improvement in the capability and reach of digital fabrication, winning the race is possible. This will take aligned collective effort in a society that is right now deeply divided. It will involve changes in the rules of the game, society's institutions, a change that is both frightening and empowering. In the eight aspirational scenarios, we saw a combination of urban and rural self-sufficiency, community capability and learning, the use of local materials to address local solutions, cultural transformation, and entrepreneurial innovation. Together, these scenarios serve as a counterpoint to automation, job loss, and purchasing power erosion. Michael Pior and Chuck Sable's 1984 analysis in the Second Industrial Divide, introduced in Chapter Four. Suggests that in past divides, the prior system does not disappear. With the rise of mass production, craft production does not disappear. It was needed to make the machines of mass production, but it was no longer the dominant model. 
If distributed digital fabrication does indeed grow at exponential rates, the role of multinational corporations, service operations, financial markets, and entrepreneurial initiatives will continue, but increasingly in the context of distributed digital fabrication. In addition to the economic implications of the third digital revolution, there will also be a needed co-evolution with the natural environment. One of the biggest impacts of the third digital revolution will be on consumable materials and supply chains. If platforms emerge for the use of local environmentally friendly materials in fab labs, then there will be major environmental gains. If not, then the exponential growth of fab labs could be an environmental nightmare. Having billions of people tinkering and iterating with environmentally unfriendly plastics or other non-renewable and scarce resources is certainly not sustainable. For the health of our planet, we need to work on creating an ecosystem that uses environmentally friendly consumables and reusable digital materials. Another emerging implication of climate change and political conflict is the growing crisis of displaced people and refugees. The UN High Commissioner for Refugees estimates that there are 65 million refugees, asylum seekers, and internally displaced people around the world. Digital fabrication in refugee camps and temporary communities could offer multiple benefits, from modular, rapidly deployable shelter, furniture, and other basic needs, to the building of technical skills and the fostering of collaborative cultures. In the aspirational scenarios, the model that Blair Evans is pursuing for self-sufficiency in Detroit could easily transfer to refugee camps, where the ability to design and deploy low-cost solutions for hydroponics and housing could become a life-saving capability for refugees and displaced people. Moreover, individuals who build these capabilities in a refugee camp may be able to build portfolios for submission to a skills certification platform that eases their re-entry back home or their emigration to a new community. Similarly, the displacement of some coastal communities because of climate change affords a unique opportunity for people looking to rebuild communities inland. We know that leaving homes and communities will be emotionally wrenching, but introducing the opportunity to start anew with enhanced capabilities may ease the transition. At a time when global displacement is growing, digital fabrication can be a new anchor for skills, capability, and sustainability. With demographic change, aging is already part of the digital fabrication world in a few ways. The age profile of many fab labs is diverse, ranging from young children to retirees. But because many retirees are looking for enriching social and meaningful activities, fab labs could provide these older adults who have a lifetime of maker skills the opportunity to serve as mentors. Conversely, the youth could develop important skills mentoring the retirees on the new digital technologies. We already see numerous fab labs and projects focused on mobility, physical assistance, and other projects useful for the baby boomer generation as it ages. Given that the number of retirees just in the U.S. is projected to increase from 43 million in 2012 to 83 million in 2050, there is urgency to work through the process of observation, alignment, and cultivation to get co-evolution. Consider what is possible in one sector of the economy and the associated communities hit hard during the last recession. Between 2007 and 2010, the U.S. auto industry displaced more than 200,000 workers, many of whom took early retirement. Most of these individuals know their way around machine tools and CAD. 
there is a great opportunity to pair them with newly installed fab labs in their respective communities. We could then curate new operating methods with enabling platforms that would accomplish three things at once. First, for the retirees, we would be providing a meaningful and enriching post-career experience, part of rethinking of retirement that is happening more broadly in society. Secondly, these folks could apply the Mel King learn to teach, teach to learn process. King has high school students learn how to operate in a fab lab so that they can then teach junior high school students the same. With retirees, a similar approach would involve intergenerational co-creation and dialogue. Third, instead of being a burden on society, the declining economic sectors and retirees become central to community revitalization. The coevolution is really a regeneration of society that spans generations. The polarization and gridlock in politics and more broadly in society have been divined, de magnified by the first two digital revolutions. One digital cause of this polarization has been echo chambers, social media where people can listen and talk to people like themselves with fewer and fewer interactions with people who think differently. Digital media has also helped enable passionate networks of people to tear down governments, such as what is referred to as the Arab Spring. But it is easier to tear down institutions than it is to build them back up, aligning the interests of diverse stakeholders. Into this mix come fab labs, which are typically open to anyone in the community. In contrast with virtual communities, it is common to see people of very different backgrounds and identities working side by side on projects in a fab lab. There is something about a tangible maker or fab project that fosters collaboration. In the Fiat Chrysler aspirational scenario, we introduce the social science concept of a boundary object, something that sits at the intersection of different communities and that enables the bridging across the boundaries. We said that fab labs are boundary objects, and it turns out that the projects are taking place in the labs are also boundary objects, small bridges within the larger bridges across communities. By observing this bridging role of fab labs and fab projects, we see opportunities for alignment among people who are deeply troubled by the polarization in society. They can then cultivate the role of the fab lab by reaching out in communities with diversity in mind. The coevolution, however, will be complex. A 2017 report titled An Economy for the 99% by Oxfam, a British-based international organization fighting poverty, observes that, quote, from Nigeria to, to Bangladesh, from the UK to Brazil, people are fed up with feeling ignored by their political leaders and millions are mobilizing to push for change. The report adds that 7 out of 10 people live in a country that has seen a rise in inequality in the last 30 years. End quote. In those settings where income inequality is on the rise, fab labs could either provide alternative economic paths that temper the divisions, or they could end up primarily serving those more fortunate, and as a result, the, de the divide deepens. In some countries, on the other hand, the middle class is growing and income inequality is shrinking. There, a new generation is, sometimes for the first time, experiencing the prospect of the next generations doing much better. In these cases, digital fabrication is riding a different wave. The key is to foster co-evolution dynamics wherever collaboration-minded people enter society, from the fab lab crucible as an antidote to the tensions tearing apart some societies, to a fab lab that reinforces class mobility benefits in others. In all these co-evolution scenarios, the process is the same. 
we begin with anticipation, alignment, and cultivation of enabling ecosystems to set the coevolution dynamic in motion. The dynamic includes the narrow coevolution between digital fabrication technology and the associated social systems, as well as the broader coevolution between digital fabrication and broad societal challenges. The roadmap for digital fabrication will not be restricted to its own world of fab labs, but will influence and be influenced by broader economic, environmental, demographic, and socio-political trends. Organizations that make organizations and institutions that make institutions. If machines can make machines, it is likely that organizations and institutions will need to co-evolve in analogous ways which raises the interesting prospect of organizations making organizations and institutions making institutions. As shown in Chapter 3, the concepts of error correction, modularity, locality, and reversibility are what enable the machines to make machines, as well as the further exponential scaling to digital and programmable materials. Can we apply these concepts to social systems? There is a mixed track record in applying analogies from science to social science, but here it is more than just parallel wording. When technology and markets shifted from craft to, ma to mass production, organizations and institutions changed as well. If technology and markets are oriented around digital fabrication, there will be a similar co-evolution. But this is not a deterministic argument around technology. We have choices to make about how this will happen, and there are constraints in the process. After all, the people in social systems have agency and uniquely human biases and foibles, but this bug can also be a beneficial feature if the agency is understood and valued constructively. One aspect of the science of digital, modular assembly, and disassembly is relatively familiar. Already, organizations born of the second digital revolution are organized around team-based work systems and project-based initiatives in which the needed talent assembles and disassembles with relative ease. We also see this modularity in the growing popularity of modular workspaces, where startups can easily rent space as they ebb and flow in size and hone their focus and strategy. This process of assembly and disassembly does take a specialized set of coordination skills, agile project management, and mitigation of harm during the change. Similarly, a wide variety of joint ventures and other forms of organizational collaboration allow for more macro forms of assembly and disassembly. At the institutional level in society, the growing use of consortia and other multi-stakeholder initiatives can serve as catalysts for change that would not have happened within existing institutional silos. These more flexible operating practices are not a perfect match for the way packets of information are assembled and disassembled, but they do have some similar properties. Moreover, the current experiences with assembly and disassembly in organizations and institutions are table stakes for the third digital revolution, which will require far greater assembly and disassembly as the pace of change accelerates. The appeal of modularity for leaders is clear, though not always for individuals who may be working in the modules that have just been disassembled. David Weil, economist and former head of the U.S. Department of Labor's Wage and Hour Division, writes of the fissurization of work, where careers have been decomposed into jobs that are now decomposed into projects, tasks, and contract relationships. He documents a dark side to work that becomes more modular. It is the, it is the workers more than the decision makers who are bearing the risk. 
At modularity's worst, organizations that make organizations and institutions that make institutions could achieve these objectives at even greater cost to individuals. At its best, such flexibility can accelerate innovation. For example, the Mondragon Cooperative illustrates how the modular approach works well when there is a robust foundation for displaced workers to be supported as they are retrained and even financed if they have new business proposals. The analogy to error correction may not be as intuitive as modularity. Yet, in many ways, error correction is the secret sauce of the first two digital revolutions, allowing for communication and computation at scale, without degradation of performance. Neil's key insight is that the same properties apply to digital fabrication. To some degree, there are some current analogs for organizations and institutions. For example, the principle of checks and balances in governance is a form of error correction at the institutional level. In industry, the reporting of near misses in manufacturing and airline safety is a form of error correction, identifying potential problems before they occur. The same principle applies in quality improvement. Such reporting is not easy to foster, given people's fear of blame or even simple embarrassment. When such reporting of near misses does occur and scales across entire enterprises or systems, such as air transportation, you begin to create a common culture of increased transparency, reduced blame, and shared responsibility for prevention. This is directly analogous to how the scaling of digital systems is enabled by error correction. The third digital revolution will require broader and more robust forms of error correction on the social side, enabling co-evolution with the accelerating technology. Assembling assemblers and pancake breakfasts. The first two digital revolutions fundamentally changed how we live, learn, work, and play. Bits changed the density of atoms. The third digital revolution raises the stakes, because we will increasingly be able to manipulate and share both bits and atoms. With accelerating advancements in the technology, we will be able to design reality, from food to furniture, tools to toys, crafts to computers, organizations to institutions. Throughout this book, we have explored both the great benefits and the risks that come with this accelerating capability. But another question remains, will these powerful new technologies make us happier? The Industrial Revolution improved many people's lives, but it also created a mass production culture that was soul-deadening. As Max Weber, one of the founders of modern sociology, wrote over a century ago, quote, It is horrible to think that the world could one day be filled with nothing but those little cogs, little men clinging to little jobs and striving toward bigger ones. This passion for bureaucracy is enough to drive one to despair." End quote. The first two digital revolutions improved many lives, but also left many people feeling overwhelmed and longing for a simpler, less turbulent past. From digital free holidays to digital detox programs to initiatives like the National Day of Unplugging, there has been a groundswell of people who feel as if their lives have become too saturated by digital technologies. We have even seen a resurgence of analog products and services like vinyl records, board games, and independent bookstores. Sherry Turkle eloquently described the phenomenon in her 2011 book, Alone Together, quote, Technology offers us substitutes for connecting with each other face-to-face. -face. We are offered robots in a whole world of machine-mediated relationships on networked devices. As we instant message, email, text, and Twitter, Technology redraws the boundaries between intimacy and solitude. 
we recreate ourselves as online persona and give ourselves new bodies, homes, jobs, and romance. Yet suddenly, in the half-light of virtual community, we may feel utterly alone, end quote. As we hurl forward into a world with ever more compelling virtual and augmented reality and other apps created by brilliant designers and behavior scientists to keep us staring at screens, finding a balance between time in the world of bits and time in the world of atoms could become increasingly difficult. The third digital revolution might just help realign this balance because this digital revolution could help us leverage bits to spend more time in the world of atoms. Making things is a deeply human behavior. Everyone needs to feel that their actions matter, that what they do makes a difference for themselves, their families, and the world. The more we, we make what we can consume, the greater our sense of self-worth. Community fab labs also tap into the deep human desires to make connections, to collaborate to tackle problems, and to accomplish goals together. As Dove Seindbin says in Tom Friedman's Thank You for Being Late, quote, our ability to forge deep relationships, to love, to care, to hope, to trust, and to build voluntary communities based on shared values is one of the most uniquely human capabilities we have. It is the single most important thing that differentiates us from the rest of nature and from machines, end quote. Fostering informal connections among people within and across Fab Labs is central to the Fab culture. Hakan Carlson tells the story of how when he was co-designing the lab in the Lingen Alps with Neil, he told him where the kitchen would go. Hakan says Neil told him, you can't have a kitchen in a fab lab. Years later, when Neil saw how the kitchen had become integral to the community lifeblood of the lab, Neil concluded, you cannot have a fab lab without a kitchen. When we started writing this book, we began with the premise that digital technologies, technologies are exponentially accelerating but that individuals, organizations, and institutions develop linearly. Perhaps this is a feature, not a bug. Sure, we need to co-evolve to make sure that we shape the technologies so they don't shape in ways we will regret. But we must also retain the essence of what makes human, what gives life meaning. Today, at age 88, Mel King, founder of the SETC Fab Lab in Boston, continues to champion how the ability to design and make almost anything is transformative. He concludes, quote, Fab Labs are an imperative. It is a way of life. It is a way of love. Making and creating. That is the bottom line, end quote. Ultimately, the best advice we can give those who are thinking about cultivating the soul of the third digital revolution is to make sure that we don't lose the visceral exuberance and empowerment that is represented in these quotes from our survey of fab leaders summarizing in a word or a phrase their view of fab labs and digital fabrication. From the Netherlands, dream, make, and share. From Kenya, the path to inclusive industrialization. From Spain, if you can think it, do it. From Colombia, materialize your ideas. From India, misunderstood genius kid. From the UAE, awesome chaos. From the United States, a space to revolutionize the power of the individual. From Chile, fab labs should disappear and merge into society. From Panama, make impossible things possible and from France, a tool to change the world. These fab pioneers are indeed designing reality. Soon, 
everyone will be able to do so as well. Thank you for watching. Please like, subscribe, and visit my channel for more exciting content.